My budget will ask Democrats and Republicans to make the needed commitment to eliminate the HIV epidemic in the United States within 10 years. We have made incredible strides. Incredible. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was President Donald Trump at a State of the Union address last month, vowing to end the HIV epidemic. It's a bold pledge, but it's been undermined by Trump's own budget plan, where this week he proposed cuts to global HIV efforts. At Politico, we've followed this story closely, first breaking the news of Trump's plan and more recently his budget funding. And to make sense of the latest developments, I sat down with Jen Cates, an HIV policy expert at the Kaiser Family Foundation. You'll hear that conversation in a moment. But first, a reminder that you can help us to keep producing this show. All you have to do, rate us on a podcast app, which helps nudge the show to more people, or send the show to a friend or colleague who's interested in healthcare policy and politics. Think of that person right now. It's never too late to send an email wishing them well and promoting this podcast. If you have suggestions for upcoming episodes, send them to me. My email is ddiamondapolitico.com. We have a few great conversations already booked with healthcare leaders in the coming weeks. And one episode we're still planning to do, a book club devoted to the classic story and the band Played On, which investigates the origins of the HIV epidemic. It's a very long book, but it's as timely as ever. And now, here's Jen Cates. Jen Cates, Vice President and Director of Global Health and HIV Policy at Kaiser Family Foundation. Welcome to Politico Pulse Check. Thanks very much. It's good to be here. You've been doing this work for three decades. Yes. You've seen the highs, the lows of HIV policy. Where are we at this moment? Is it an optimistic moment with breakthroughs and and research and funding? Is it a realistic moment with President Trump and his policies? That's a that's a good question. Um, I I'm an optimist by just by nature, and I think we there is some sign for optimism. I mean, we've been doing this for 30 years. I've seen a lot happen. I've seen the ups and downs when you know the pre-treatment era when literally nobody had there was no treatment, and if you were uh, diagnosed with HIV, that was was your death sentence. Um, and so Liv kind of saw that, saw the overcoming of that and the, and the um, you know, announcements at different times. And we're in this weird place where um, there's so much information. We know so much about how to tackle this. Um, and it's just about aligning what the knowledge is with the resources and the investments and the political will and the policies. So there's a real opportunity to do that. Um, this, you know, this is an interesting week to be considering it, the, the Trump administration and President Trump himself announced, you know, forecasted in the State of the Union last month that there would be a new initiative for the U.S. And lo and behold, we see in the budget request that came out, there was actually new resources for domestic HIV. First time in years that that has happened. And let's put some numbers around that. The Trump administration is setting $291 million toward its HIV initiative. And not only is that the first new money in years, it's also a fair amount of money 
for domestic policy. Right. Yeah, the way I think about it is for just $291 million, $140 million to CDC, HIV programs, which is quite significant for that, that program. It's like an 18% increase. Uh, $70 million for Ryan White, which is a program for people with HIV who are uninsured and underinsured. Named for the teenager who contracted yep. HIV through a blood transfusion back in the 1980s. Definitely. And it is the nation's safety net for people with HIV. I mean, we can talk more about it because it's kind of the, the success story of, of what is needed. Um, so th- this, this is real new money for these programs. Um, if approved by Congress, it would be quite significant for them. But in the larger context, you know, $291 million, um, it's not uh, uh, a lot in the context of what HIV costs to really meet all the unmet need. But it is— What, do, what does HIV cost <laughs> to meet all the unmet needs? So $291 million yeah. for next year, and then yeah. there's future right. funding that I've been told could reach up into the billions of dollars. But just $291 yeah. that we know of now. And the way I, the $291 million is new, mostly new and, and significant. And the way I think about it is it's the first tranche of this potential that would come. And so it can be a catalyst if it's used— you know, right, if it's targeted to the right communities that have the most need and it's following public health principles, it can be the catalyst to really push this in the right direction. And then if more is followed on, then, yeah, it really can start to add up. I think stepping back and going, okay, how many people with HIV live in the U.S.? Over a million. How many people are at risk? Many more. Is everyone getting access to what they need? No, it costs, uh, you know, to just to access PrEP, just the drugs alone is about $20,000 a year. That's pre-exposure prophylaxis, so someone who's not yet uh, positive. So just to underline that point, the yeah. drugs the that drugs. Would, would keep people safe and, and prevent yeah. HIV, yeah. that's $20,000 a year. So if you do the math, that $291 million could be exhausted yeah. quickly. And to their credit, the administration is not saying, as I understand it, that they're going to spend $291 million on PrEP. They are going to be using it through existing programs to sort of move communities in the right direction, including PrEP access. I think that's that's the right approach. Um, but the other way to think about this money um, is the larger dynamics of what's happening in the healthcare system. And so the Trump administration is pushing this initiative, which um, you know I think is is really it's grounded in in public health scientific knowledge and, and the tools. At the same time, the administration wants to, in its budget request, repeal the ACA and repeal Medicaid expansion and cut back on um, access. And so th- that kind of works in the opposite direction. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. HIV doesn't exist in a vacuum. It works in the opposite direction because lots of patients who might need access are getting it through the ACA. And if that was to go away, they wouldn't be able to get the treatment and care that they need. Exactly. So the ACA has, we've studied this, it has expanded access for People with HIV um, in the U.S., uh, they've gotten more coverage, they've gotten more access, uh, medications are available for free or low cost. Um, and so, yeah, if you cut back on that, it's going to create a situation where people just don't have access. Or, or the, other, the other thing to think about, it, maybe coverage will be maintained, but interruptions could happen. So what happens if someone with HIV is, on, is in care and then treatment gets interrupted? Well, resistance could occur. Um, they could become infectious. Uh, if their viral load is suppressed on treatment, they're not infectious. But if they lo- you know, lose access to treatment, even if it's for a, period, a short period of time, it could have uh, these incredible effects. So um, those dynamics really do work in the opposite direction here, and it, it will be really uh, important to sort of see how that plays out. There's one other factor when it comes to this administration HIV policy, and that's the global Policy. Right. So I wrote on the, the, uh, this it, this week after the funding announcement, yeah. and you and I talked about it. And and my take, Jen, was the Trump administration is saying to Congress, put America's HIV epidemic first because it's looking to also cut uh, international funding to programs like PEPFAR, right. which was the signature George W. Bush administration effort to 
deal with HIV and AIDS around the globe. The Trump administration is looking to take more than a billion dollars out of PEPFAR. They're looking to take money out of the Global Fund, which deals with HIV and AIDS. So there's actually more money total coming out than being put in to HIV efforts. Exactly. That is true. The Trump administration for the third year in a row is asking Congress to dramatically cut the global HIV program and global fund. And prior to that uh, point, that had never happened before. I mean, George W. Bush pushed this and launched this incredible program that's been heralded by everybody as a success. Um, There's evidence that it saved evidence, 17 million lives correct, around the globe. Correct. And and really has changed the trajectory of what would have happened in sub-Saharan Africa writ large um, because of this epidemic. Um, so it's there's no one. There's not a question about its success. It's not a question about the um, reach that it's had. But there's still a huge gap in what's needed. So to to ask for these kinds of cuts, so they're so dramatic. When they first happened three years ago, people were I think kind of stunned. Congress rejected them. Happened again second time. Congress rejected them. Happen again now. Congress will likely reject them, but it's a very different stance than what we're seeing on the domestic side. And and you know, it's an epidemic and it's a virus, and so it's kind of a weird way to do that. You make a very important point. The Trump administration releases its budget. Yes. This is widely seen in Washington D.C. as as a little bit of kabuki theater. <laughs> um, it, it's a signal. It's important because this is what President Trump would do if he could get his way. Yeah. At the same time, yeah. this is not the way it's going to be. Congress controls. The, the power of the purse. Right. So PEPFAR and these global funds, we firmly expect, to your point, that those will largely be preserved. But that that raises a question for yeah. me, which is, so how should we feel about the domestic right. funding that the Trump administration wants to? Why would Congress agree to some things and disagree with others? How do we know what they'll do? That's a very good question. I've actually been thinking about this because, yes, in the case of the global side, um, Congress, even when there was a Republican-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Senate before the 2018 election, they rejected the president's cuts on this, on, on PEPFAR. So they basically said, no, we're, we don't share that vision. We want these programs to succeed, and we're going to continue to fund them, including the Senate giving a little bit more in fiscal year 19 to PEPFAR, which is kind of amazing. Um, in this case, what one of the uh, important things when a president stakes out an area that they say is important, like when George W. Bush staked out the global HIV uh, response with PEPFAR, and now President Trump and, and the agencies are saying we're going to do something in the U.S., it draws attention to it in a new way. Um, and in this case, uh, because the proposal was coming from the experts in the agencies, the public health experts in the agencies, it's gotten a lot of support, and the president has signaled it, and a really critical thing – Congress has had bipartisan support for HIV for a long time. And that's an interesting story, too, but it, it really has. And so this is not seen as something that's very – that's partisan and particularly, you know, mired in all the uh, big, big P politics. Um, so I, I see this kind of situation. I could see Congress saying, yeah, we, we get it. We, we like this idea. It's, you know, it, and also they look like the bad guy if they don't come with this, right? So then they, they kind of look like we had an op- opportunity here. And we didn't fund it. So I think that that will play in a little bit. But, um, you know, there's a, the budget's going to be an interesting story as, as we go down the next few months. I feel like I've had an interesting perspective on this story. About a month ago, the Trump administration announced that it would pursue this plan to end the HIV epidemic, essentially, in America in, in a decade. I, I broke that first story. Mm-hmm. So I got to see on, on social media how the world was reacting to this story. And there was... In, in one word, there was skepticism, mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. skepticism that this administration of all administrations should not be trusted at either healthcare or 
issues that affect LGBT Americans. Right. And, and this was not just random people on Twitter. These were scholars and researchers saying, we, we need to see the receipts, essentially, to know that the Trump administration will carry this out. Now, you've been in the Humphrey building. You've talked to some of these experts who are leading this initiative. I, I've talked to some of them, too, who have, who have said to me, some very senior people, yeah, we, we get why the world doesn't trust us here. What do you need to see in the next number of months to know that the Trump administration is serious mm-hmm. about its pledge to fight HIV? So I think what, you know, very, very important what you raised because um, there was skepticism and there still is skepticism while at the same time um, there's also cautious optimism. This could be the first time that there's new resources for domestic HIV in a long time. I think what what the community of people doing this work would want to see and has already been shown a little bit is that the people designing this, the the agency uh, uh, leads, are using – the science and the public health know-how of, of what is out there. Um, and when you say the agency leads, we're talking about Tony Fauci. Tony Fauci, Bob Redfield. Um, Tony Fauci, the longtime NIH expert in, in infectious disease. Right. Bob Redfield, Robert Redfield, the CDC director. Correct. Um, and Brett uh, Girard, who's the uh, ASH at a- Assistant Secretary for Health. And people that, and particularly uh, Tony Fauci and, and Robert Redfield, have a long history in HIV. Um, you know, Tony especially, uh, you can... There's, it's, he's just a fascinating, you know, um, person who's been involved in all aspects of this, and they've been seriously involved in this. But Dr. Redfield, his long history has come under some scrutiny because he's been involved at, at times with policies that are now seen as as backwards in terms of who should get access to treatment and whether condoms and, and other things should be distributed as yeah, prevention. Yeah, yeah. So he's been involved in a long time, and there have been stories reported on on his views and and some questions about his views because some of the things that he said, you know, two decades ago. Um, and, and we're we're not seen as really the cutting edge of what we know, and 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 some were concerned. I think what I've wit, you know seen from from since he's taken the position at CDC, uh, him backing up the the view he has now, which is that he supports those things, and has said he supports the science. So he, he, he has said his views have evolved, evolved on things like yeah. prevention. Yeah, his views have evolved on prevention. He's uh, when he's talked about this initiative, he's talked about condoms, he's talked about stigma, he's talked about syringe access. So uh, you know he has said. We are following the data. So if that's the receipt there, right, the, you know, will the data be followed? Will uh, the, the combination of things that we know work or can work be done? And how will that, what will that look like in communities? Because one of the things about this initiative that I think that is important is that it's very much focused on local places. And that's that's been you know that's been a bit of a missing piece that you spread everything across the United States. You know every community has some HIV, but some have a lot more. Some have a lot more risk. And and if you don't focus, you can really we're we're not getting to the scale that we need. What are some of those local communities that get overlooked? Are we talking about you know random places in Missouri and Montana? Are we talking about big cities that maybe we don't think about? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit about. I mean, what they did for this in this case is they they identified the top uh, fifty. 48 counties based on the number of new HIV diagnoses, which is a pretty good proxy for where new infections are occurring, where people are most, and and therefore people are being at risk. Some of those places like San Francisco and New York City are actually at the forefront of, of, you know, ending their epidemics, but, um, uh, and have a lot of lessons to share. So perhaps... Well, this will be a good thing to watch. Will the administration be giving them new resources? If so, what kind? But then there's places like, um, you know, some of the some of the counties in in, in Georgia or in Alabama or or, or states that um, that have in the South in particular, where there's just a whole combination of reasons why we're we're not there's no 
there's not been a good success story there. Um, there's a lot missing, and people aren't getting what they want or need. Sorry, people aren't getting what they need, and are facing incredible obstacles. So this, by channeling those those places with new resources, that's what I mean by catalyst. It could really catalyze a change. Um, but it's going to be different. You know, San Juan, Puerto Rico is one of the sites. So what's what are they going to do in San Juan? What are they going to do in uh, you know Atlanta? What's going to happen in, in parts of Texas? And and those are really different landscapes. But if you what we've seen in HIV is if you use the right scientifically proven tools and engage the community, you can make that impact. Beyond the Trump administration's HIV initiative, there have been other news announcements in the HIV AIDS world the past number of weeks. I wanted to sit down and ask you, an HIV AIDS expert, on on these news stories. And one would be the fuss over a possible cure for at least one patient with with HIV and whether we should take a stock in, in that and see if it could be extrapolated. Specifically, this was a patient who had cancer, right. and, and it's the second time that there has been seen uh, that a bone marrow treatment could potentially lead to an HIV cure, at least in that patient. How much should we look at that, Jen, and say this is a path for a cure, or is this just a one-off that is interesting but not necessarily replicable? So it, it, it is exciting. Um, it, it is something that those of us working in this for a long haul feel we have to pay attention to. We have to see it as an um, advance in research. And research has always been, you know, critical to HIV, but it has to be seen in context. Um, this is – it's a one-off in the sense that this isn't a I mean that it's something that can be rolled out to people. It, it shows the possibility of a pathway for researchers to work toward a cure. That's what it is. There's a lot between that moment and getting there, and but it's proof of, of what's possible and proof of concept by having another patient that was able to, to see this result. It's still a long way off from what that could be for actual people, for population uh, level uh, cure, or even for subpopulation level cure. So the, the, the concern is that the narrative can switch, right, and be like, we have a cure. If we just have to get that out to folks. We don't have a cure for HIV. We're, we're not that close to having a cure. That's not the narrative. The narrative is science is amazing. We keep learning a lot of things with science. Um, HIV has taught uh, so much to not just the, to about HIV, but about the whole field of uh, of you know many many different areas: immunosuppression, um, retroviruses, cancer, uh, and that's all important for science. But you know we have to translate science into the real lives uh, that people lead. So when you saw those headlines popping up, and I know I got three or four different alerts on my phone that a patient had been cured of HIV, are you excited in that moment? Are you worried that it's going to be misconstrued? I was excited initially, and then I got worried. Be exactly that. I said, oh, great. Uh, oh, yeah. Now we're going to get all this, the stories that there's a cure. What are we doing? And, and there's already this, this tendency, I think, that um, – and certainly we see this globally of, wait a minute, uh, we still have an epidemic globally? You're asking for more resources? You think we need to do more? It, it's really hard to sustain that sense of, you know, we, we know so much and we've had all these successes, but it's still a long way to go. And these kind of – these breakthrough um, findings, which are so great, um, you know, the average person doesn't spend all time, all day looking at the data like I might. I'm a data nerd and policy wonk, so I get really into this stuff. But the average person doesn't, and, and I, of course, they're going to think we're at a very different place than we are. 
I'm, I'm old enough to vaguely remember when Ryan White, the, the teenager who got HIV through a blood transfusion, when, when he died, which I believe was 1990. Yeah. And then Magic Johnson contracted HIV a year or so later, had to retire the NBA star Magic Johnson. And, and I was young and, and didn't totally understand what was going on. But what I understood was that HIV was seen as a death sentence. That was almost 30 years ago. What was the moment where HIV transitioned from death sentence to chronic illness. I, I am sure there was a pathway, yes. but, but when was really the moment when it became something that Americans could live with and not necessarily immediately die from? So that moment came roughly in the around 1995, 1996, really 1996. Um, and and a lo- lo- those of us who were involved then remember being at the Vancouver International AIDS Conference in 1996 when the results were released about highly active antiretroviral therapy and protease inhibitors. And lo and behold, it was discovered that if you did the right kind of combination therapy, um, you could control the virus in a, in a very significant way and people could live longer. That was the moment. And what's amazing is that you could actually look ahead in the U.S. because it, it, in the U.S. and, and uh, countries in Europe, um, it was rolled out. Uh, death rates started to fall. Um, people who really thought they had no time to live were living. Um, and so that was the moment. And it was a dramatic moment. And it was actually what led to the global response because after that happened in the U.S., by the end of that decade, activists were saying, wait a minute, we have life-saving treatments, but we're not providing them anywhere else in the world where, there, where people have, have no access. That, that, that's an ethical issue. And that's kind of spurred this, this new movement. But yes, it was, it was 1996. So given those breakthroughs, and to your own point, that there are other illnesses, there are other epidemics that may be claiming more lives every day in America, right. why do we need this new money for HIV? Well, HIV, first, there's a lot of different reasons. I mean, HIV still has some unique um, aspects to it because the stigma associated with HIV, even though it's lessened, I, I do think it's lessened, is, is really uh, striking. And um, people who with HIV or people at risk do feel internalized stigma and face real stigma in their lives, and that um, is quite dangerous when you're talking about an infectious disease. Um, also, uh, HIV, well, where we are with the, the treatments today, we know that if somebody is uh, on antiretroviral ther- therapy and virally suppressed, meaning there's no, you can't detect the virus in their in their um, body, they um, they are not only going to essentially be healthy, uh, potentially for their entire lifespan, the regular lifespan, they are not infectious to a negative partner. They will not transmit HIV. That's a tremendous breakthrough in science that we that's recent. Um, that means that. Getting people access to treatment has tremendous public health benefits. So if you think about it that way and step back and go, we have an infectious disease. We know that um, due to a lot of structural and other challenges, people at risk and those with HIV have access barriers. But if we can reach them, we can save their lives and prevent for future transmission. That's very powerful. And the game plan is so clear. Any president conceivably could do this if there was funding and, and, and willpower behind it. That's true. And, and, you know, we didn't talk about this, but during the Obama administration, President Obama did release the first comprehensive national HIV strategy for the U.S. And in it, if you can go back and look at it, it talks about we need to focus in the hard hit areas for the hard hit populations. Um, We need to, you know, reduce new infections. It had some of the similar language, but there were never new resources. Um, and, uh, and, you know, but I think it laid some of the groundwork that we're seeing now. So that's the other thing about the, the receipts here, I guess, is that this is a, um, coming from, from nothing. It is building on 
um, the existing platforms that have been developed, including what Ryan White, his legacy has started, the Ryan White program. You've made this your life's work. You've spent decades in this field. Why did you choose this path? I feel like it chose me in a way. I, you know, I was thinking back to when the, when I first got involved. I was a new, you know, new college graduate. So all those things that you know, when you first come out of college and try to figure out what you're going to do with your life, and bam, I was hit with the, this, this reality that people I knew were being infected with HIV, were not getting there were no, there were no services uh, around at that time. This was you know, eight, I'll date myself, um, 88, 89. Uh, my community didn't have anything to offer. Um, didn't have protections for people. It didn't have prevention services. And I just couldn't stand by and not do something. And that really propelled me to get involved. Um, and what ended up happening after that sort of moment of passion is because I, as I mentioned earlier, I just love data and policy. That was the way I chose to, to focus is to really take on the sort of bigger policy discussion on this stuff. And it's really guided my path since then. The Trump administration is aiming to end the HIV epidemic in America in the next decade. There are global health efforts to end the HIV epidemic around the world around that time. Does that put you out of business if the HIV epidemic is cured? If the HIV epidemic is ended by 2030, I would gladly be out of business. I would do it tomorrow. I would have done it 10 years ago. Um, That would be a great story. I hope that's the case. Um, You know, I'd like to say that we can get quite far along that path if the right things are done, but we'll see. Thank you for guiding me and our listeners as we talk about the path ahead, Jen, and and good to see you. Thank you very much. Good to be here. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Jen Cates and the team at Kaiser Family Foundation for sparing their recording studio and Micaela Rodriguez for producing the show. You can find Politico Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. My favorite is Overcast. You can find me at ddiamond at politico.com. You can find a new episode of Politico Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.